When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Oh, wonder-working stars in the precious... they seem are not the results of mass hysteria. <laughs> You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. It was a couple years back, around this time, start of the new year. I'd taken the fall semester abroad in Italy, and was just taking a few weeks after exams and final projects to slum it around before heading back home to Canada. I know it must seem like a strange time of year to be a tourist, but it was important to me that I take the extra time. I'm Italian myself, you see, on my mother's half, and I had a great time that term and stayed in beautiful places, Florence, Venice, Rome, all gorgeous but I hadn't really had a chance to explore my roots, and those roots were up in the North Country. The time of year is also important because nothing I'm going to tell you would have happened had I not been where I was for the ritual of the Badalisk. The Badalisk. The name is probably a corruption of Basilisk, but this isn't any kind of serpent with a deadly glare or poison breath. The Badalisk is a creature all its own, and part of an epiphany-time tradition in that particular region of Italy. Why don't you look it up, right now? B-A-D-A-L-I-S-C. I'll give you a second. Pretty goofy looking, right? <laughs> kind of looks like a giant sock puppet. Just a big head covered in goat fur with a big mouth, goat horns, and those beady little red eyes. The Badalisk is a creature that visits towns during Epiphany, or rather is ritualistically captured by a set of stock characters. Once there, the Badalisk gives a comedic speech where it talks about the town gossip and reveals people's secrets. Then there's singing, dancing, eating, and at the end of it the creature wanders back into the woods. It's one of those European crypto-pagan traditions that's just inoffensive enough that it's stuck around in a predominantly Catholic country. 
Though I guess it never entered today's zeitgeist quite in the same way that Krampus did. The Battlesk. <sighs> but we'll get back to that later. I wasn't traveling because of that. I was traveling to visit the town where my mom's family came from. I didn't know much about my family history back then, but that wasn't some willful ignorance. None of the family really did. My Nona was only a little girl, only two or three when she'd come to Canada. Her sister, a baby, and her brother still in the womb. That was in the 30s, before the onset of the war. Anyway, that's to say that my Nona didn't really have any memories of the old country, and her mother didn't talk about it. The family always figured that was because her husband had been killed. Mussolini, rise of fascism, all that. And that it just filled her with too much sadness to speak or even think about it. Even on my great-grandmother's deathbed, it had apparently been like pulling teeth to get her to even reveal the name of the town. Hmm? No. I, uh, don't think I should. The name's not all that important anyway. But, yes. That's where this all happened. In a small town, small enough that it's not on most maps, in the northern part of the Valcalmonica Valley, in the province of Brescia. It was a few days after New Year's, and after a train ride and a long, expensive, and queasy cab ride, I arrived there late afternoon. As we pulled up into the town square, I saw him there waiting for me. Vincenzo, just as my nonna had described him. You see, this was my first time visiting the town, but not my nonna's. Since she'd learned about the place of her birth, she had made a point of visiting almost every summer. A couple of times my parents and aunts and uncles and cousins had gone with her, though I never had because I worked through the summer, trying my best to put a dent in my tuition. Vincenzo was a friend she had made on these visits. A good friend. In fact, in the years after my nono's own passing, I got the impression that they'd become a bit more than that even. But there he was, lean and sharp-faced, head full of silver hair and with a refined mustache. I could see the appeal. It seemed that he knew who I was on the spot. I mean, it also wasn't the kind of town where taxis roll up twenty times a day. He strode forward with arms open wide, bringing me in and giving me a big hug and a peck on each cheek. Buon Natale e felice anno he said, giving me a good shake. Grazie, signore, e anche voi, I said, trying especially harder than usual not to fuck up the pocketbook Italian I'd been stringing together for four months. He smiled at that and slapped me on the shoulder, then told me not to worry and that he likes practicing his English. I won't say I wasn't relieved that I wouldn't have to spend 50% of my brain power on translating for this whole trip. Well, after that, he started showing me around. Or at least what there was to show. That's not to say that there wasn't much to show. Just not a lot. Does that make sense? Like I said, it was a smaller town. Population probably only a few hundred. Maybe closer to a thousand if you included all the rural homes within a half hour's drive. Vincenzo showed me the church and the school, the market and the town square, which weren't particularly busy given the weather. But even then, I could picture it in the summer. Beautiful blue sky, people hustling and bustling about. I could close my eyes and see it a hundred years ago. Hardly changed. Maybe with just even fewer people. But it was certainly beautiful in that moment as well. Blankets of thick snow having come in off the Alps, miles and miles of undisturbed white when he looked off past the outskirts of the town center. You know, Vincenzo leaned over and told me, and I've told your nona this as well, this is actually my favorite time of year here. I love the quiet, the... how do you say it? 
the tranquility. It reminds me that no matter what has happened here, this is a peaceful place. I tilted my head when he said that last part. I wasn't sure what his meaning was. What is it that happened here? I asked. He met my eyes, and then turned away. He had a look on his face as though he said something he hadn't meant to. Niente, uh, nothing, he managed. Trouble with tourista the other year. I wondered to myself how many tourists they could possibly get in a place like this. But then he clapped his hands and a smile lit his face back up. Oh, yes, and if you stay for just a few more days, you'll be here for the Badalisk. Not knowing in that moment what the Badalisk was, I raised my eyebrows. And then he gave me an approximation of what I explained to you a minute ago. I didn't really get it, but it all sounded like some harmless fun. A bit of culture from the old country. We went back to Vincenzo's, I was staying in his guest room, and over dinner he told me about all the salacious gossip the Badalisk had revealed the year before. A few hours later, I was lying in bed, stomach full of good food and red wine, mind and heart brimming. I was dreaming pleasant dreams, I think. And then, at that late hour, something woke me up. Nothing loud, like a crash or a bang, but a feeling, and then a noise. I woke up in that guest room, squinty-eyed, looking for my phone to see what time it was, and feeling somehow strange. As my eyes darted around that rustic room, I had the feeling, for the first time since I had set foot in that town, and for a reason that I could not determine, that I was not welcome, that this was not my home. And then I heard something. A mumble, or maybe even a grumble. I turned my ears up, trying to focus on the sound. It was an almost human sound, but I could hear Vincenzo snoring from down the hall, so I knew it wasn't him. Realizing that it was coming from the direction of the window, I headed towards it. It was becoming more clear. I dashed those last few steps and opened the window up, and... Nothing. Nobody. Not there, not below, not even down the street. But I had heard something. I moved silently down the stairs and made my way to the front door. I knew I'd heard something. The streets were still and snowy. I was glad for it. Nobody out to see me, and the snow muffled my steps. I didn't want anybody to see the strange sight of the Canadian boy out in his pajamas. But even though I was aware enough to think that... I pressed on. Something compelled me to follow, and I soon found myself nearly at the edge of town. Who is doing this? Some kids playing a prank? But now, in the direction that I thought the sound was coming from, there was nowhere left to go. The sound had stopped, and all I could see was the town behind me, the fields and the copse down the road, and, I had noticed last, a small stone marker. It was unremarkable, a rectangular block low to the ground. There were names on it, but nothing to say why those names were there. The only reason I noticed it was because of everything around me. It was the only thing in sight, not covered in snow. Odd. All odd, I thought. But I was tired, and started walking back to Vincenzo's. What had I even been hearing? It sounded like Centurione, 
I wasn't sure, but I was pretty sure. The next morning, I came downstairs and took a seat at the kitchen table, as Vincenzo was standing at the range preparing coffee in a scarred Bialetti and humming Verdi to himself. I started a question, almost thought better of it, and then asked anyway, Vincenzo, can I ask you something about the village? Certamente. What is that monument at the end of the West Road? He stopped humming. His shoulders tightened, and when he turned to look at me, his eyes were wide. Who told you about that? I lied and said I had seen it yesterday on a late-night stroll, though I guess that was barely a lie. He took the coffee off the heat, poured two cups, and put one in front of me, and leaned back into a chair and sighed. There is no use hiding it, I suppose, he said. There was once a man, a terrible monster of a man who was born in this town and was responsible for the greatest sadness it has ever known. The man, Vincenzo told me, had been a ranking officer in the volunteer militia for national security. You might know of them as the Blackshirts, an organization within Mussolini's fascist regime tasked with internal security and quashing any anti-fascist sentiment. In a small town like that one, this man was king, and he had been a cruel king. The Blackshirts in general had been brutal, Political rivals and insurrectionists would be beaten, or tied naked to trees, or forced to drink castor oil. But, for the most part, murder was isolated to specific targets, or to particular time frames of civil unrest. For him, though, there was never a dimmer switch on that kind of thing. What was his name? I asked, taking all this in. Vincenzo scoffed. We don't use that man's name anymore. Names are for human beings. No, that devil was only called the Centurione. When I heard him say that, I gulped my coffee without thinking, burning my throat. As you might have guessed, Centurione is modern Italian for Centurion. The Blackshirts had used Roman Latin for all of their ranks and organizational terms, and Centurione was the equivalent of captain in the National Army. The memorial... Vincenzo finished explaining, was for his victims. I considered asking him if anyone he had known was on there, but pretty well knowing the answer already, I thought better of it. I visited it later that day. It was almost more solemn in the day than it was at night. Quite out of the way, not in the town center where you might expect such a thing, but off in a remote corner on the city's outskirts. A thin patina covered it, and the fact that it was less well-kept than masonry in the town that was hundreds of years older spoke volumes. The list of names on the memorial was staggering. Nearly two hundred people, mostly men. Now, my great-grandmother's behavior made some sense to me. She had changed her own name when fleeing from the country, but I was sure that her husband's name was etched somewhere on that marker. This clearly still wrought such sadness that the people there would rather forget about sadness and the shame that such a madman had been born and raised there. I didn't ask any more about it, as the details were plain enough. He'd murdered nearly a quarter of the population of this small town, which almost certainly affected most, if not every family in the town at the time. Considering the feeling that it caused in my gut, knowing that my own family was one of those affected, I didn't feel like asking much more about it myself. I tried to put it from my mind and I spent the next few days in relative peace. 
Despite that bit of sad history, there was so much to love in that place. And despite that strange feeling of unbelonging I had felt the other night, the people welcomed me with open arms. And, of course, soon, there was the Badalisk to look forward to. After one more day of gazing at beautiful buildings and sipping espresso, it was the evening of the 5th. Epiphany. Like most evenings that week, it was cold, but not terribly cold, and there was a gentle and consistent snowfall. We were standing in the town square, Vincenzo and many of the other residents of the town, all huddled up close and smiling and waiting for the battleisk. It did feel like a strange tradition to be sitting in on only as a visitor, one where the main point was to have a laugh about the town gossip. The whole concept of the event, by the way, if you don't know any Italians, being maybe one of the most Italian things I could imagine. But even though it felt like it should be strange, it wasn't. By now people knew who I was, who my family was, and they seemed genuinely happy that I was there, that I had come home, so to say, and was being part of the community. They smiled, they waved, some other friends of my nona stopped to give me a hug. As we were all waiting there, one man saw me and called out, Don't let the battle scare you, Canada boy! Which got a laugh out of the crowd and got me a few healthy slaps on the back. It was almost time now. About an hour earlier, a small group of the town's young men had gone off to make preparations. There was a small grove at the edge of town, right at the end of the West Main Road that led back to where we were. That's where they were getting into costume and preparing the battleisk puppet. Any minute now, they'd be marching up the road. Masked characters of the young man, the old man, the old woman, the maiden, and the hunchback, with the creature in tow. At least, that's what I was told it would be like. There was a rustle in the trees. The crowd noticed, and people began murmuring with excitement. Rustle, rustle, the groan of old trees, more rustling, more excited chatter, rustle, chatter. Then it stopped. All I saw at first was a vague shape down at the end of the road. A blob. A sphere. It was small, off in the distance, but became bigger and more defined as it began to approach. I looked around me, having expected people to become even more excited. Instead, there was silence. There was a palpable confusion in the air. As the thing, the battleisk, I supposed, got closer, I turned my gaze back toward it and began to get a better idea of what it looked like. It was mostly fur, but not the short fur of a goatskin cover. Rather, a long, shaggy coat that covered the whole thing and gave it an altogether more amorphous appearance. It even reached down and covered the plodding feet. That's how it moved. It slowly plodded. It just trudged along. I guessed that they wanted to cover the puppeteer's feet, though I didn't think they'd be going for such a level of immersion. The other thing you noticed, of course, were the horns. Huge things that came out from the side of its head and curved up simply like a bull's horns. And as it got closer, it was almost honest now, with everyone still silent, you noticed its eyes. Well, not its eyes, but the deep glow that came off of them. Two specks of hellish red that lit up the snowy night. That glow, and the profound silence of the crowd sent a sudden convulsion of fear through me. As the battleist came up upon the crowd, it stopped. Its head, though what was head and what was body was hard to tell, swiveled slowly, scanning the silent faces. Then, 
It approached again. The people near the front moved as if to retreat, but then stopped. And from the back where I was standing, I saw a curious string of actions that began to repeat itself. The battlest would approach, and someone would back away, but then be drawn in by something. It looked like they were listening intently, and then they would get closer until, I guessed, the battlest was done saying what it came to say. I couldn't tell what it was saying. It was so quiet. But it didn't look funny or joyful. It didn't look like the battlest was talking about teenagers necking spinsters or when Paolo the baker forgot to put salt in the day's loaves. This kept happening as it worked its way through the crowd, one by one. My eyes were glued to it at first. But as the battlest was nearing us at the back, I began to notice something else out of the corner of my eye. People were staring at me. Well, not just people. Everyone. I hadn't noticed because I was so fixated on the battlesk, but just about everyone who the battlesk had come to was now staring at me. And then it was my turn. The creature stopped mere inches from my face. It was huge. Ten feet tall and roughly that in its other dimensions. Even from that distance, though, I couldn't see its eyes beneath the fur, only the red light that it was casting upon me. I didn't back away. I'd now seen this enough times to figure that I wasn't in any danger. I stood there, and it stood. There was a long, tense moment, and then something else happened. It smiled. From under that fur, a huge pair of lips that I had not noticed before, that stretched across the whole width of its front, began to shift, and I was greeted with a big, toothy smile. A row of mammalian molars the size of my head, and only molars, presented themselves to me. A wicked, impossibly big smile, brimming with secrets, danced across its face. And then that smile in those teeth went away. It pursed its lips and whispered something to me, whispered in a voice so quiet that you couldn't believe it came from such a huge mouth. I stood there, not knowing what to say. The people stood there, Vincenzo with them. Some still stared, some awkwardly looked away, some cast rageful gazes down to their feet. None of them seemed to know what to say. After the creature was gone and out of sight, the sound of trumpets and tambourines raised. From down the road, a group of young men in masks danced towards the town center, singing and drinking wine from the bottle and pulling along a big puppet of goatskin with little horns, little eyes, a big mouth, and a man's dress shoes poking out from its bottom. I looked back to the crowd, to Vincenzo. He looked at me, his face just... sad. Just sad. I think you need to go, he said. I left that very night. Vincenzo was kind enough to drive me back to the city of Brescia, though he hardly said anything on the snowy road. What I have pieced together from the last little tidbits he offered me was this. The Centurione was responsible for all the murders indicated on that marker, but what I didn't know was that most of them were carried out in a single short period of time. When the man had 
settled into his new position, lording over the town, he had decided to take a young wife for himself. They were together for a few years, and she gave him three children, but it was an unhappy situation. She despised him, as did her brother. Her brother had been the schoolteacher in the town. At the time, the fascist regime was exerting its power on education in the country, and teachers were expected to indoctrinate children into a love for fascism and for Mussolini. Her brother refused, and the beating he received in the streets went too far and killed him. That was the last straw for the young wife, and she fled with her children for a better life. The centurione, I suppose not believing that his wife had the will and grit to make such an escape, believed that she was still in the town, being hidden. In his effort to find her, and his children, he hanged the man of nearly every household until he exhausted his search. Hanged them high for all the town to see, and to always remember. What the Badalisk said to me on that snowy night that I'll never forget, and from that huge mouth that will never stop haunting me, was Centurione, Frutto del Centurione. Now I know why my great-grandmother never talked about her husband, and that's why I had to go. It's not like I was under threat or being chased off with torches and pitchforks, but it just would have been wrong for me to stay, having his blood in my veins. And the Centurione, I suppose he got some kind of justice. We'll just say that once the war started, it became clear that he was better at killing farmers than he was soldiers. I've never been back, and neither is the family. Vincenzo stopped talking to my nonna, which she was pretty upset about. I think she still is. Everybody just kind of assumed I'd made some terrible faux pas while I was there, and that's why we weren't welcome anymore. But I'm okay with them thinking that. It's better than them knowing the truth about my nonna's father, or the uncle she never knew she had, or any of the others who died. Because, as much as you want to know where you come from, sometimes it's just better not to know. The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is that you listen to The Wrong Station. This week's episode, The Battleisk, was written and performed by Anthony Botello. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. You can also follow The Wrong Station creative team on Twitter at AEW Saxton, AJV Botello, and Jacob BRDS. And until next time... Thank you for listening.